You know, I was standing around the other day sticking a nail into my eye when I found myself wondering how can I get this exact same experience without getting all this blood over my shirt. Then it came to me. It was time for another visit to our favorite website, Everyday Feminism. Hey, Everyday Feminism is the website that includes articles accompanied by an editor's note, and so help me my hand to heaven, I am not making this up, articles that are accompanied by an editor's note that warns readers, quote, this article is written by a cisgender woman about the social expectations that she experiences having a vagina. Please keep in mind that not all women have vaginas, and not all people with vaginas are women, and their experiences may differ, unquote. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, whoa, that is so painfully stupid. Reading it felt almost like sticking a nail into my eye. So now you get the idea. Today's article from Everyday Feminism is called, You Don't Have to Hate Women to Be Sexist, Everyday Ways You May Be Sexist Without Knowing It. Now, of course, it's very true. You don't have to hate women to be sexist. But after reading this article, you probably will. So that should make things a lot easier. The article explains that even though you like women, and may even support one of them and help her raise the children she mysteriously keeps coming up with from somewhere, you may still be committing microaggressions against her by treating her as if she were a woman, instead of treating her like a man who, for some reason, keeps producing children through the vagina she may or may not have. Having this woman explain to you that you're committing microaggressions against her is very important because it reminds you that you may have forgotten to tell her to stop talking. Take a moment and tell her now, and the microaggressions will go away. According to the article, microaggressions may, quote, take the form of jokes, like telling a woman to get back in the kitchen, unquote. Clearly, this illustrates a lack of communication between men and women, because apparently some women think this is a joke. That's why their men start getting hungry and cranky, which may explain some of the microaggression. This situation would be alleviated if the women would get back in the kitchen and make a damn sandwich. Actually, this is a very helpful article. Another common form of sexist microaggression, the article says, is chivalry. Acts of chivalry, like opening doors for women or paying for dinner, are, quote, small acts of condescension steeped in assumptions that women are delicate, incapable, and need to be tended to, unquote. This, of course, is ridiculous. If women were delicate and needed to be tended to, they would go around blaming their unhappiness on make-believe acts of aggression no one else could see, and they would never do that, unless they were feminists, who, of course, are very delicate and need to be tended to. So, that's Everyday Feminism. You may now return to sticking a nail in your eye. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Hooray, hurrah, it's our 200th episode. Hey, and here wait, we have a balloon. <laughs> we spare no expense in this show. <laughs> I love the fact, I love the fact that 100 episodes, I got like cake and people threw confetti at me. It's like, oh, it's too, ah, you take your balloon. <laughs> it's very exciting. We're, we're actually going to show you for our 200th episode, and I haven't seen this yet, we have the making, the making of our theme song. So let's let's see how this theme song came into being. Testing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel hunky dunky. Life is tickety boo. 
singing, also singing, hunky dunky Ship shaped, it's oh, a no, 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 no. world is a pity zing. It's a wonderful day. Oh, hurrah, hurrah. Oh, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hurrah. Oh, hurrah, hurrah. No Muslims were hurt in the filming of that video. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe one of them. We may have just shot one of them at the very end, I think. That's what it was. That, was, that was just for, for the sound effect, though, right? I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. That was at the entire... It took this in, the entire Daily Wire staff to make that video, so you should appreciate yeah. it every time you hear it. All right, we're going to talk about the debate, the vice presidential debate. What were we talking about again? Oh, the vice presidential debate. All right, who won? Does anybody care? And then with a big story, there's a big story that actually nobody is covering, and we'll talk about that as well. And... It's mailbag day, the mailbag. You know, Lindsay is coming to visit on Monday, I think. So we'll actually, we should, rec- well, she said we should record her woo-hoo so we can actually play it on the show. Because <laughs> you guys suck. I mean, I just, you know, no, no offense or anything, but just. All right, uh, what else? So you can watch on Facebook and YouTube for 15 minutes. And then your eyes will just go black and you won't see anything. But you can come to The Daily Wire and hear the rest. Or you can download us on iTunes or SoundCloud. But if you subscribe, it's so easy. 30 days for free. You can watch the whole thing as it's happening on The Daily Wire. Come back. You can come back later, right? And it's still there. You can see the whole thing on The Daily Wire. And uh, it's just 30 days for free and then a lousy eight bucks. And uh, I'm signing all the stickers. I'm almost through signing the stickers for the books that were pre-ordered. The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. I'm getting sick and tired of plugging myself, which I, I hate doing. So this will be like the last week I'll probably be plugging it. And if you forget, you're going to miss the great experience of reading this memoir. People, so help me, people are writing me, telling me this book is changing their lives, which I, I maybe maybe their lives were great before. Now they suck. I'm not sure. <laughs> but at least, at least there's a change going on. All right. So who won? Pence won the debate, right? Yeah. yeah Pence won the debate. I mean, Kane. You know, the, the thing about the Clinton campaign is they're so practiced like everything they do is written and you can just you can hear the strategy session going on it's like sometimes you watch a movie and you can hear the development meeting taking place behind the scenes you know this is Kane came in who's obviously his strategy was to interrupt and goad Pence into doing something getting angry so that Pence they could say oh these are two guys out of control and instead Pence uh, Kane came across like a squirrel it was just like you know here here, he interrupted 72 times somebody counted them here's just a little bit of that. Love Russia. You, you, you both Their heavy-handed said, approach. You, you both have said Vladimir Putin well, is a better we're hang on get to Russia. Yeah, Elaine, no, but, thank you. But, thank, but, but thank you. Thank you, Senator. You guys have praised yeah. Vladimir Putin as a yes, great leader. How, how can they that, defend Senator. that? We yeah. do have and paid a few taxes and lost a, a billion dollars a year. You are Donald Trump, uh, Trump's apprentice. Uh, no. let, let me talk about this Senator issue. Secretary okay, State. now I can weigh in. She had a private server that was discovered overrun by ISIS. Because well, Hillary you, Clinton you failed to renegotiate. More, more American troops Hillary in Iraq, Clinton, you can, Hillary you can Clinton. propose that. Like, shut up. You know? it's, like, it's like, really, it's like having like a kid, you know, mommy, mommy, mommy. You know, it's like, be quiet. I'm trying to talk to somebody here. All right. Uh, Kane's other strategy was to go after Trump. A lot of, which, you know, that's that's a good strategy. A lot of, a lot of canned lines. But here was his attack on, uh, on Trump. Uh, yeah, the Kane on Trump, number three. And I just want to talk about the tone that's set from the top. Donald Trump during this campaign has called Mexicans rapists and criminals. He's called women slobs, pigs, dogs, disgusting. I don't like saying that in front of my wife and my mother. 
He attacked an Indiana-born federal judge and said he was unqualified to hear a federal lawsuit because his parents were Mexican. He went after John McCain, a POW, and said he wasn't a hero because he'd been captured. He said African-Americans are living in hell. And he perpetrated this outrageous and bigoted lie that President Obama is not a U.S. citizen. If you want to have a society where people are respected and respect laws, you can't have somebody at the top who demeans every group that he talks about. And I just, again, I cannot believe that Governor Pence will defend the insult-driven campaign that Donald Trump has run. So a lot of commentators, especially on the left, which is where most commentators are, but a lot of them said, you know, well, Pence didn't defend Trump. And there are two reasons for that. One of the thing, one of some of the things Trump has said are indefensible. I mean, he's got a big mouth and he says stupid things all the time. So why should he defend him? But also, it's not his job to go on defense. It's his job to constantly be on offense. That is how you win a debate. And that is what Trump didn't do. This is Trump's tick. So here's Pence's response to this stuff. He says ours is an, an insult driven campaign. Did you all just hear that? Ours is an insult-driven campaign. I mean, to be honest with you, if Donald Trump had said all the things that you said he said in the way you said he said them, he still wouldn't have a fraction of the insults that Hillary Clinton leveled when she said that half of our supporters were a basket of deplorables. It's that she said they were irredeemable. They were not America. I mean, it's extraordinary. And then she laid one after another ism on millions of Americans who believe that we can have a stronger America at home and abroad, who believe we can get this economy moving again, who believe that we can end illegal immigration once and for all. So, Senator, this, this, this uh, in, insult-driven campaign, I mean, Governor, we're, that's small potatoes compared to Hillary Clinton calling Senator half Kevin, of Donald Trump's supporters a it, basket of deplorables. Are you watching, Donald? I mean, that is how it's done. You know, if he had said, even if he had said half the things, so he doesn't deny it, he says even if he had said half the things, it wouldn't be as bad as calling all our and, – and numerically, that's right. You know, you call one judge, you know, a damn Mexican or whatever it was Trump said about the guy. Yeah, that's, is that deplorable? Absolutely. But you call all of those, those supporters, half those supporters deplorable, you know, numerically you're right. It was, it was good stuff. And if Trump had anything like that kind of style, if Trump had anything like that kind of style, he would blow Clinton off the stage. You know, people were talking about, in a debate like this, the uh, moderator, Elaine Quijano from CBS, and a lot of people on the right at this point complaining about moderators and the press is knee-jerk because you're always right. So it's like it's like hitting a, it's not like hitting a barn door. It's like hitting the sky. You can't miss if you're attacking the media for bias because they're always biased. But I have to say, I thought under the circumstances, was she biased? Yes, she was. Some of her questions to uh, Pence were more challenging than to Kane. She let uh, Kane go wild, and she stopped Pence constantly whenever he went over time. You know, she was she was biased, but it looked to me more like unconscious bias than the kind of attack Candy Crowley stuff that we usually see. So I thought she was okay. But the one thing I just want to point out, there was a poll today that came out, a really interesting poll. Nearly three-quarters of Americans, and this sounds like a tangent, but it's not, nearly three-quarters of Americans don't trust that there is a large scientific consensus amongst climate scientists on human behavior being the cause of climate change. In other words, most people three-quarters of Americans have not bought in to the climate change thing. And the reason I bring this up is because the press threw 
everything it has at this. It, just like Brexit, they threw the kitchen sink at that this was the government's chance to take over the the left's chance to take over the uh, energy industry. To, they've already tried to take over health care. They've come very close to taking over health care. This was their chance. And if they could just make you scream, go screaming through the street that if you drove a car or if somebody fracked or if somebody drilled for oil, it was going to destroy the world. If they could just make you believe that, it was worth it. So they called us deniers. They, you know, they compared us to Holocaust deniers. They did everything. Three quarters of the people don't buy it. So it's right. We should continue to attack the bias because these guys are a bunch of lying scum. That's that's the first thing. I mean, you know, come on. You know, it's 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 frustrating to have these guys from the New York Times with their excellent educations and their incredible suits and their expensive haircuts just come to work and lie to us and try to tell us that you know Brexit is going to destroy the economy and Trump is you know like King Kong and all and the world is falling apart if we don't give them all the power they want. You know. That's it's offensive on its face, but it doesn't mean that people are going to buy it. And I've told this story before, but when I was a reporter, I remember walking into a Cracker Barrel store and a guy sitting there literally playing checkers on a Cracker Barrel turned to me and made fun of me for being a reporter. And he said, if I open the newspaper and it says there was a train crash, I think, well, maybe. And I think that's the way people look at the press, and they're right, the press lie. All right, so back to the debate. So that's just a, a comment on the comment on the moderator and how bad this always is. The thing is, is that Pence also won because the Obama record, and the, which Clinton has to partake of because she hasn't said anything that's going to change, the Obama record is so bad. And that's the thing. You know, Let's listen to Pence on the economy, just because he, he was so much more realistic than the media has been or anybody has been on the economy. I think he's a very fitting running mate for Hillary Clinton, because in, in the wake of, of a season where American families are struggling in this economy un, under the weight of higher taxes and Obamacare and the war on coal and the stifling avalanche of regulation coming out of this administration, Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine want more of the same. It really is remarkable that they, they actually are advocating a trillion dollars in tax increases, which I get that. You, you tried to raise taxes here in Virginia and were unsuccessful. But a trillion dollars in tax increases, more regulation, more of the same war on coal, and more of Obamacare. You know, and, and on terrorism also, Cain on terrorism tried to defend the record on terrorism by going back to Osama bin Laden. Not only did they kill Osama bin Laden, they keep digging him up and killing him again. You know, at this point, Osama bin Laden is like, all right, all right, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> like, stop, stop killing me over. Here is Cain on the uh, Hillary's record on terrorism, which is absurd. The terrorist absurd. threat has decreased in some ways because bin Laden is dead. The terrorist threat has decreased in some ways because an Iranian nuclear weapons program has been stopped. The terrorist threat to... United States troops has been decreased in some ways because there's not 175,000 in a dangerous part of the world. There's only 15,000, but there are other parts of the world that are challenging. Let me tell you this. To beat terrorism, there's only one candidate who can do it, and it's Hillary Clinton. Remember, Hillary Clinton was the senator from New York on 9-11. She was there at the World Trade Center when they were still searching for victims and survivors. That seared onto her the need to beat terrorism, and she's got a plan to do it. She was part of the national security team that wiped out bin Laden. Here's her plan to defeat ISIL. First, we've got to keep taking out their leaders on the battlefield. She was part of the team that got bin Laden, and she'll lead the team that will get Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. 
Second, we got to disrupt financing networks. Third, disrupt their ability to recruit on the, on the internet in their safe havens. But, but fourth, we also have to work with allies to share and surge intelligence. That's the Hillary Clinton plan. She's got the experience to do it. So this brings me to this story that's been buried, basically, but we can't tell it to you until we say goodbye to our friends on Facebook and YouTube, and we'll see you over at The Daily Wire. Okay, so, of course, Pence strikes back on terrorism. Basically, he says, you know, Osama bin Laden is old news at this point, and he led al-Qaeda. ISIS is the problem now, and ISIS wouldn't be there if Obama and Hillary Clinton had negotiated a status of forces agreement. There is no way out of this. Cain kept saying, well, Bush agreed to this and that. No way out. They pulled out too completely and too soon, and they blew the peace. They had it, and they blew it. And nobody can look at the Middle East and say it's in good shape shape because the sand is on fire. You know, sand doesn't even burn and the sand is on fire in the Middle East. Okay, here's a story from Politico. The Obama administration is moving to dismiss charges against an arms dealer it had accused of selling weapons that were destined for Libyan rebels. Lawyers for the Justice Department on Monday filed a motion in federal court in Phoenix to drop the case against the arms dealer, an American named Mark Turi, whose lawyers also signed the motion. The deal averts a trial that threatened to cast additional scrutiny on Hillary Clinton's private emails as Secretary of State and to expose reported Central Intelligence Agency attempts to arm rebels fighting Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, which was Hillary's, of course, little project that she talked the president into. Questions about U.S. efforts to arm Libyan rebels have been mounting since weapons have reportedly made their way from Libya to Syria, where a civil war is raging between the Syrian government and ISIL-aligned fighters. During 2013 Senate hearings on the 2012 Benghazi attack, Clinton, under questioning from Senator Rand Paul, said she had no knowledge of weapons moving from Libya into Turkey. WikiLeaks head Julian Assange in July suggested that he had emails proving that Clinton pushed the flows of weapons going over to Syria. Now, Julian Assange has not come through with any of his his threats to release important documents yet, but who knows, maybe he yet will. So they dumped this case against an arms dealer to protect Hillary Clinton's bid to keep her out of the press because she may have committed perjury yet again. So that's that's a story that nobody's covering, but that is really, remember, this is how she got in the Benghazi problem in the first place, because they lied to protect Obama's lie that he had decimated the terrorists, the terrorists in the Middle East. They didn't want to say, oh yeah, and we had a big terrorist attack, killed four of our people over there. So they lied about it. Now they're lying again, and they're just, they're actually putting aside, um, they're, they're actually putting aside this case. I have to just mention one other part of this VP debate. I know it's not the most important thing, but I have to mention the exchange on abortion because Cain is a putative Catholic, but he really is one of these social justice Catholics, which is more Marxism than Catholicism. And Pence has been very strong on abortion. And Pence, you know, one of the things that always gets me about Republicans in debates when they get asked about abortion is they look like no one's ever asked been asked the question before. They haven't prepared an answer. It's as if, you know, your kid came to you and said, Dad, where do babies come from? And you think, whoa, who ever thought my kid would ask me that question? You know, I mean, a smart dad, a smart mom is thinking about that before the kid is conceived, you know, what he's going to, how he's going to answer that question, you know, and 
Republicans show up for these debates and they get asked like, you know, well, do you believe in abortion in the case of a little girl being raped by an ogre? You know, and the guy says, you know, he makes a fool of himself. And like that, you know, he doesn't have a, a prepared response. Pence, it took him a minute to find it. But Pence had an excellent response on abortion. And here's part of it. But what what I can't understand is with Hillary Clinton and now Senator Kane at her side is to support a practice like partial birth abortion. I mean, to hold to the view, and I know Senator Kane, you, you hold pro-life views personally, but, but the very idea that a child that is almost born into the world could still have their life taken from them is just anathema to me. And I, and I, cannot, I can't conscience about, about a party that supports that, or that I know you've historically opposed taxpayer funding of abortion, but Hillary Clinton wants to, wants to repeal the long-standing provision in the law where we said we wouldn't use taxpayer dollars to fund abortion. So for me, my faith informs my life. I try and spend a little time on my knees every day, but, but it all for me begins with cherishing the dignity, the worth, the value of every human life. And when Cain came back and said, hit him with this Democrat talking point, why won't you trust a woman to choose? Pence finally got it right. Because a woman's right to choose is a diversion. It's a diversion. If the child's life matters, a woman has no more right to choose whether to kill it than I have whether to kill her. You can't, you can't say, oh, he, you know, you, he killed his wife. You're not going to let, why don't you trust a man to choose? You know, if a guy doesn't like his wife, why can't he kill his wife? You know, it's like it's a man's right to choose. You know, nobody would say that, but they, they've made it this they've made it this issue it has nothing to do with this issue there's only one person in an abortion proceeding who has no vote only one person who has no power there's only one person one person who can't speak for himself and that's the baby and pence actually got there eventually and and made that point that this is one of the weakest among us whom we are sworn to protect and who our society ultimately is judged by how we treat the weakest among us so that was the debate so does it matter Here's my answer, okay? And it's a little different than what everybody else has to say. But, you know, everybody talks about the 1988 Lloyd Benson uh, driving home that Dan Quayle was no John Kennedy. That's one of the most famous, that's the most famous line in a vice presidential debate, one of the most famous lines in any presidential, you know, campaign debate. It didn't matter. People forget, of course, that Bush Quayle killed Dukakis Benson, okay? Is this going to matter? I think it's going to matter to a very, very small, maybe half a percent of the people who are looking at Donald Trump and thinking, oh, man, I just can't. I just cannot do it. And thinking, well, at least he's got this guy in his side pocket. And who knows? Maybe he'll die. (laughs) I mean, I think there's a small number of people who are thinking, well, okay, maybe we'll have four years of Trump, but then we'll get Pence, you know, because he came across as a real conservative. And look, I was thinking, everybody was thinking, looking at these, both these men, why can't these be the candidates? Why can't we just have these guys? And, you know, I say this even though I know everybody says it, but it's an actual important thought because it reminds us that the presidency is just a job. We don't need Flash. We don't need the latest cheerleader for whatever, you know, uh, identity politics we're trying to prove, the first woman, the first black, the first Asian, the first Asian woman black. You know, we don't need that. We just need somebody to run the business of the country and leave us the hell alone, you know. And that these guys kind of reminded you of that. Either one of them, of course, would be a better president than the people running for president. The fact that they're white bread and boring, that's actually in their favor, you know. And I think Pence won. I think it'll have a small, a small effect 
if Trump now comes back in the second debate and does a good job. It's all on Trump's shoulders. He has been an absolute jerk this last week. And, you know, every time I say this, I see the comments go flashing up on Facebook and, every, you know, you, know, you, you rotten, you dirty, you know. If you want people to lie to you, first of all, go somewhere else. But secondly, they're going to lie to you. You know, if when these these things, shows, podcasts, websites, they're attendance based. They want you as an audience, and so they will lie to you if that's the only thing you listen. You know, there's a famous poem by Ernest Hemingway. Not many people know this poem, but I do. It's called The Age Demanded, and I will read you the entire thing. It takes me five seconds to read it. And just the one word that is kind of unfamiliar now is bung, which is like a cork that you hammer in a, in a wine bottle, a bung. So Hemingway wrote this. The age demanded that we sing and cut away our tongue. The age demanded that we flow and hammered in the bung. The age demanded that we dance and jammed us into iron pants. And in the end, the age was handed the sort of crap that it demanded. <laughs> and he doesn't say crap. I'm, I'm censoring that. But just, you know, make sure you're not demanding crap from the people who are commenting and reporting the news because that's what they'll give you. They will feed you back the lies that you tell yourself if that's, what, if that's the only thing that you'll listen to. <clears throat> Trump has been out of control. He has been the Harambee of politics <laughs> for the last week or so, ever since he lost the debate to Hillary Clinton. And he is going to have to figure out how to go into this next debate which is a town hall debate next week, and and win and do what Pence did to Kane. And then I think he still has a chance. It's going to be very close, but I think he still has a chance. Mailbag! <laughs> you guys are terrible. God, oh, man, this is, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. I'm, all right, from DD, uh, I'm having a hard time understanding what you mean when you talk of the truth or a truth. I think I'm misunderstanding because it doesn't make sense to me. I think you heard, I heard you say there are many truths, but conservatives and Christians don't read, listen, watch anything if it goes against their truth, but there are other truths out there presented by artists that need to be heard. How can there be more than one truth? Yes, you are misunderstanding me. That is not what I said. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to have the chance to make things clear. Remember, I'm a writer. I'm used to be, being able to go over things again and again until I'm sure they're clear. So when I'm talking like this off the cuff, I'm sure I do sometimes become less clear than I would like to be. Um, there's only one truth, but there are different levels of truth and different kinds of truth. So, for instance, if I say to you, I'm sitting here in this chair, that is one kind of truth. If I say to you, I love my wife, that's a different kind of truth. It, it is a, it's not a physical truth. It's a spiritual one. If I say to you, the flower grows because the sun shines on it, that is true. <clears throat> but if I say to you, God makes the flowers grow, that is also true. But it's truth at a different level. And then there are truths that can't be spoken directly. We know this because we all go to the movies. We all go to TV shows. We all watch stories about people who aren't real and worry about those people and cry over those people and get frightened for those people. Why? Why do we do that? Because there's a truth embedded in storytelling. You know, whenever, whenever somebody asks an author, and this is always true, what's the message of your novel? The author says, if I could have told you that, I wouldn't have written the novel. It's so much quicker to write the message, you know, and it, or as the old joke goes, the old Hollywood joke is if you want to send a message, use Western Union. When you tell a story, it is to communicate an emotion. I cannot communicate the truth of how anger feels, but I can write you a story that will make you angry. I can't communicate how grief feels. But grief is a truth. Grief is a, a living, a lived truth. So that's what I'm talking about when I when I protest with Christians, what I argue with Christians about, is don't be afraid if something seems, if people can communicate something true without 
any reference to Jesus without belief in Jesus, without belief in the Bible. They can be atheists and, and still communicate something true. If it's true, it's godly because God is God of the real world, not fantasy land. And that's all I'm saying. If you close off your mind to anything but rigid one view of the truth, you're not getting the whole truth, which is God's. You know, that's, that's my point about that. All right, from Wes. Dear Andrew, when having political discussions with my family and soon-to-be wife, they want to use the government to enforce moral behavior. They cite the Bible stating how gay marriage is an abomination, how people shouldn't use drugs or become drunk with wine. I'm a Christian and believe in the Bible, yet I disagree with their method of using the government to enforce moral behavior. How do I convince them that they can believe in these things, yet oppose laws that put people in jail because of them? Actually, <clears throat> the burden is on them to convince you, because any um, nation that has been a been dominated by religion, a theocracy, has really been oppressive. It has really been oppressive. And that the reason is, you know, Queen Elizabeth said this. She says, I don't, she says, I don't need a window to look into my subject's souls. And, and that's the reason we don't do that. You know, I mean, people believe different things. And, and by the way, you shouldn't really worry about what the government can do on a, on a holy level to some degree. You should worry if they start to persecute people for their beliefs, if they start to force people or try to force people to go against their beliefs. That's really bad. But for instance, if, if in the eyes of God, gay marriage isn't marriage, the government can't make it marriage. You know? <laughs> what are you worried about? You know, I mean, like if that's, that's not a problem. You want to stop the government. You want the government to stop people from hurting each other. And if you can make an argument that something hurts somebody else directly, you know, not like down the line, but directly, then the government has a right to step in. I always, the example I always use is the government has no right to tell me to wear a seatbelt. They should not be allowed. The, the federal government really doesn't, so state government is a little different. But they should not be allowed to tell me to wear a seatbelt. If I prefer to go through my windshield every time I hit the brake too hard, that's my business. But they sh should be able to allow me not to use my cell phone by hand when I'm driving because that endangers you. The government has the right to do that. So <clears throat> that, that is the government is not an arm of God. And the reason it's not an arm of God because nobody knows exactly what God wants at any given moment. And nobody knows, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis has one of my favorite lines, and C.S. Lewis is in one of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe books, the Narnia books. Uh, Aslan, who represents God, says, I tell, I tell every, no one hears any story but his own. We do not know the inner lives of other people. We can't regulate them. We shouldn't regulate them. We shouldn't regulate their relationship with God. It's really on them to prove that there's been such a thing as a theocratic government that didn't oppress people. All right, I'll do one more. We're going to go long today. Uh, you know, if you hear banging on that Shapiro trying to get in, right? <laughs> Is he back? Is Shapiro back? Yay, good. All right, so he'll be back. If you hear him banging, we'll, we'll let him in. Uh, from Marley, love your show. I'm a college student in my composition course. We've been writing papers on trigger warnings. My professor is unapologetically to the left, but in my own research and dealing with the topic, it seems like people who side with her get trigger warning, crybaby type culture confused with the content warnings we've seen on TV for years. I get it. Okay. Uh, they claim that we need trigger warnings for people who have experienced actual trauma, such as sexual assault victims or war veterans with PTSD. That's ridiculous. Um, that's, that is, that's a non-argument. First of all, the, the information that is given to you on a TV show, there's going to be nudity, there's going to, you know, is for something that is being broadcast that you may want to use, you don't have to watch it. You can turn it off. It's just giving you a piece of information. It's giving you a piece of information about the content. That's all it should be able to do. They shouldn't be allowed. You know, in, in England, when I lived in England, they can actually keep people, they could keep me from taking my children to a movie uh, because it was rated 15 or, or 
uh, older. Um, they can't. They don't do that here. They just tell you what's in it, and I support that. Why shouldn't we have information? I'm always in favor of information. But this idea that the world can be a nursery in which every delicate little soul can be protected is absurd. If you go to college, you are going to classes. If you're going to classes, you're discussing ideas. If ideas upset you, you shouldn't be there. So it's like, it's like the warnings that lawyers make them put on cups of coffee. This coffee may be hot. It's hot because it's coffee. You shouldn't be that stupid. There are, there are ideas in this class because it's a class. That's the nature of a class. You can't sue a ski slope because you broke your leg, and you shouldn't be able to protest in a classroom because you heard ideas. It's absurd, and you cannot run the world as a nursery. That's why every time I hear leftists say, think of the children, I think I do think of the children. The children have to live in the, in the world, and I will protect them as much as I can, but you can't build the world for children. I don't want every television show to be for children. I don't want every book to be for children. Colleges are places where you debate ideas. Ideas can be dangerous things. They can be ugly things. They can be hurtful things. You don't want to listen to ideas. Don't go to college. You know, that's, it's that simple. All right. Stuff I like. Uh, before I go into Halloween stuff I like, I've been just reviewing all the stuff I watched over the weekend. Pop star, never stop, never stopping with Andy Samberg. <laughs> Hilarious. Really funny. I mean, uh, by the way, the language is, uh, you know, horrible from beginning to end. It's one of these new comedies, so every other word is a four-letter word. If you don't like that, don't watch it. That's the little piece of information there. However... If you hate rock music, like I hate rock music, this is a takedown of the industry. And all of the industry people, all the famous people, you know, Pink and all the rappers, they're all in it, making fun of themselves, so good for them. But it's brutal. I mean, it is brutal about the sentimentality of it, about the filth of it, about the ugliness and stupidity and shallowness of it. And it's really, really funny. And I think it bombed at the box office. I mean, nobody knows who Andy Samberg is, you know. And like, like I, but he's re it really is funny. And it's based on, he has these things, what is it, Lonely Planet? Is it? Lonely Island. Lonely Island. He has all these Lonely Island. They're on YouTube and they're mock pop songs, right? That's like, yeah. So I didn't even know that. Uh, my son told me while we were watching it, but it's really a funny film. So let's talk about Halloween stuff I like. Uh, I want to talk about slasher films because this is a genuinely, one of the things that happens in Hollywood, and I've seen this myself, is everything tends to go down. So it's kind of like living in a drain. Everything tends to, you pour it in at the top and it swirls down. So I remember, for instance, when The Ring came out, I thought The Ring was one of my, it's one of my favorite ghost story movies and I love ghost stories. And I realized when it came out that I could make a good living for the next couple of years writing ghost scripts because I'm good at it. You know, I know how to do it. And I did. I sold. I was selling them as they were coming out of my computer. It was great. And as, as the ghost trend ended, the stories got uglier and uglier. Not my stories, but the stories that Hollywood was telling until finally they were just making slasher porn and calling it a ghost story, calling it a, a horror movie. Porn movies have become like um, hostile you know, where just basically a woman comes on, takes off her shirt for the first 20 minutes, and for the rest of the film is tortured to death, you know? And I have to tell you, I find that disgusting. I once actually lost a job because they pitched me the story. They tell you the story, and what's your take on it? And the story, I swear, this was what they said to me. So a woman gets captured, and she's tortured. And I went, yeah, that's the movie we want. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, this is, I said, you're going to laugh at me, but when I see a woman on screen being chased by a guy with a butcher knife, I'm rooting for the woman. And that was the end of the job interview, so I was done. But having said that, there I don't like these films very much, but there are some really good ones that I do like. And how many of them are based on the story of Ed Gein? Ed Gein, Psycho is based on the story of Ed Gein. Um, Silence of the Lambs, 
Ed Gein, the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on Ed Gein. Ed Gein was this little crazy guy in Wisconsin, Plainfield, Wisconsin, who was dominated by his mother and started going out and robbing graves and killing people and building like stuff out of their skin and all this stuff. And he inspired Psycho and all these other stories. And um, and what, what was funny about it is, you know, in the movies, everything's a mystery. But the minute they realized people were being killed, it was like, it must be old Ed Gein <laughs> you know, in real life. They knew right away because he was nuts. You know, he was this crazy guy. But it's, it's really interesting the way different people have used this. In Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock uses it to talk about psychology, the, you know, the men's, uh, man's relationship with his mom. In Silence of the Lambs, they use it to discuss really the nature of evil. He's talking about evil, and that's one of the things in the book especially, is he's talking about the psychiatrist's inability to accept that even when there are psychological causes for something, that doesn't mean it's not evil. And that really is what that book is about. It's a brilliant book. And I, I, I don't like the movie as much as everybody else does, but, but there are three, here are three slasher movies that you may or may not have seen that I think are actually pretty good. Halloween is one, the original Halloween. Not the remakes, not the sequels, but the original one with Jamie Lee Curtis, 1973 maybe, I can't remember. Uh, is, is really a good movie. And what it's really about, I think, is it's about the fact that women were moving out of the home and it takes place in this suburb and they're always walking around the suburb and no one's there. And all of a sudden the street, now when I grew up in a suburb, you walked around a suburb and there was a mom at every window. There was a mom at every kitchen window. So whatever you did, you know, you got in a fight. By the time you got home, your mom said you got in a fight because the mom chain would go down. Though in the 70s, that stopped being true. And this, you know, this film really picks up on the scariness of that. And it, it really, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis plays the girl who's a babysitter, who's kind of representing the fact that the moms are gone, you know, and that was really interesting. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, earlier the, the original one, again, really, really ugly film, but scary as all get out. And nowhere near as violent, the title is the most violent thing about it. I mean, it's got some violent scenes in it, and by the end it gets grotesque. But that is, again, about family life. It's a, a picture about family life. The they go to the scary house, nothing scary happens. They meet the scary people, nothing scary. But then they go to the white picket fence house and they meet a family from hell. And it's really an interesting, it's almost satire. I mean, good horror always kind of treads on the edge of satire. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is really scary, really grotesque, but also has a, something to say. And the last one, which I'm sure you've never seen, is a French film called High Tension. And I have to tell you, High Tension, the very first scene, is one of the ugliest, most disgusting, I still can't get it out of my mind, one of the ugliest, most disgusting scenes I've ever seen. But I have to say, by the time the movie is over, it's a very clever, very uh, well-developed psychological study of a slasher. And it's, uh, it's, it's really frightening and very suspenseful and has some great stuff and it. it's in French you got to watch it with subtitles unless you speak French but I just want to warn you <laughs> warn you this is x-rated violence from the very first scene on all right tomorrow one more day the, the Clavenless weekend will come but not today by golly we'll be back tomorrow to talk some more I'm Andrew Claven this is the Andrew Claven show <laughs>